Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. So I'm going to let you guys in on something. I was really nervous about this conversation. Today, I talked with two of my peers in our field, Thomas Moore and Brittany Griffin. I knew we were going to be talking about difficult issues, and I wasn't sure how they were going to respond. Luckily, after we recorded, they both let me know that they were nervous as well, but grateful that we went there together. They're rising stars, currently in leadership roles at their institutions. They share their optimism for the future and gratitude for the national conversation and acknowledgement across colors of racial injustice in our country. Brittany Griffin is the Associate Development Director at the Be The Match Foundation. In this role, she's responsible for building and maintaining relationships in support of research, the National Marrow Donor Program Registry Recruitment, and Patient Assistance. Prior to Be The Match, Brittany has worked at the Portchester Carver Center and Columbia University. Brittany received her Bachelor of Arts in African American and African Studies from the University of Virginia and a Master of Science in Nonprofit Management from Columbia University, where she's an associate instructor. Our second guest, Thomas E. Moore III, is the Director of Individual Giving at New York Roadrunners, also known as NYRR. In this position, he provides leadership, direction, and coordination for all aspects of individual giving, fundraising strategies, and activities that enable the organization to support its charitable programs. Prior to joining NYRR, he served as Interim Chief Development Officer for New York EDGE, New York City's largest provider of no-cost, out-of-school time programming for K-12 youth. He also led major gift fundraising efforts for the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. Thomas is a proud graduate of CCNY's Colin Powell School of Civic and Global Leadership. He lives in Harlem with his wife, Alexandra, who is also a passionate nonprofit professional. I'm so thankful to Thomas and Brittany for their vulnerability and for being open to have this conversation. Thomas and Brittany, it is so much fun to have two loyal listeners and great supporters of The Debrief. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Some of you may have listened to last week's episode with Birgit Burton, where we started the conversation. Now we're going to go deeper and hear about some personal experiences from the two of you as fundraisers. So there was an article that really struck me that came out last week that said, here's a newsflash for all of the white people unaware of this fact. Your black colleagues may seem okay right now, but chances are they're not. So what have the last two weeks been like for you two? I can say for me, it's been a range of emotions. I've been exhausted. I've been angry, but I've also been inspired and encouraged by just how people are just rallying around the world really about racial injustices that African-Americans have been facing because it's something that I didn't think I would see in my lifetime. So it was just very exciting and encouraging to see the change that can come. Yeah, I think I'd actually echo in Brittany's feelings there. It's been a, a roller coaster. I think generally navigating life is a roller coaster for all people. And then you add on all the layers for everyone. And, and for me in particular, being a black male, navigating through primarily white spaces through most of my life, it's been a, a difficult two week, but hopeful as well. I think it's almost like there's been a wide mass awakening. I grew up with the, with the phrase going around our home 
once you know better, you do better. So I'm just hopeful and, and optimistic that that will be the, the mantra of, of everyone going forward. I'm glad you raised knowing better because you know, I've just now started doing research as it relates specifically to our field. And I know this is old data, but I found 2018 data, according to AFP, that 10% of the field is black. Did the two of you know that when you decided to go into development and what inspired that career path for you? That has been life for people of color. Um, in America for quite some time, especially in the professional space. So I was not all that shocked. I'm glad you all can see it now. Nine times out of 10 out of gala, you can count the people of color on, a on your hand. In the workspace, you can sort of count the people of color as well. And they're usually not in forward-facing roles. So no, it wasn't all that shocking <laughs> to, to have that stat come to life. Yeah, I wasn't surprised either by that stat. It's just, you know, taking into account past organizations I've worked with, just looking around the office, it's, it's real. But development's such a great field. What I love most about it is that you can have an impact on something that's greater than yourself. It also gives you a chance to work with so many phenomenal people internally and externally. And you just learn something new every day from the constituents that benefit from your mission or even the donors you work with just learning about their journey and what's allowed them to become so philanthropic and make a change in their community is inspiring. I think I would add to that being in this field you have to be incredibly confident and you also have to be resilient and I think those are two natural characteristics people of color primarily black people inherently have if they've been able to successfully navigate the workplace in America. How have the two of you identified mentors and how important is it that those mentors are professionals of color? For me, identifying mentors is just looking at individuals who have career trajectories that I would like to mirror or model, but also how they're respected and looked at within their organizations and how they treat their colleagues to me is a really big driver for um, the mentors I've selected and also how they see me. Like I appreciate not all my mentors are people of color, but they see me for who I am and they understand what obstacles can be thrown in my path just because of my race. I love that. I, I don't have anything to add. That's uh, most of my mentors are actually not people of color. Echoing again, they just see me as whole. They also acknowledge some of the difficulties that I may experience that they may not, and they use their voice and their privilege to advocate for my success. It would be great if you could just share some specific obstacles that the two of you have faced and gone through for the sake of, of understanding that whole experience. I would say like some things that stick out in my mind just from what I've experienced and also talking to other black fundraisers is that people are shocked when they meet you sometimes where you're the person they weren't expecting to meet you. It's like, oh, hi, like I'm Brittany. We've exchanged emails. You know, it's like that quick look on their face, but they try to make sure I didn't see it. And as Thomas has alluded to, it's just being black in America. You're used to people being surprised or not expecting you to be who you are, especially when, you know, they may look at your LinkedIn profile and see where you went to school and the organizations you've worked at. So they may have their own expectations of what you should look like. For me, it's, it's probably not a thing that I'm actively thinking about when I go into a donor meeting, the color of my skin. It's just, it'll naturally come up, maybe indirectly. And I think they're the most well-intentioned people. 
nine times out of 10, but it's just a shock. I think I have a name that in this country is maybe synonymous with a white person, Thomas More. Certainly when I worked for a Catholic organization, it was the beginning of every donor meeting, the joke, Sir Thomas More, oh my goodness, not only do you still have your head, but you are not a white male. Ha ha ha, and we go on and then we move on to the purpose of our meeting, which is building that relationship centered around the mission of the organization. Are there any other examples that you'd be willing to share? When you experience the microaggressions that go on and just learning how to respond to them and being in that moment when it happens. I remember one experience I had with a manager of an organization. We were preparing for a meeting and somehow we got on the topic of the negative connotations that come with things that have the term like black male and being black ball. Then, you know, isn't it crazy how things that had the term black are considered negative, but you know, a white paper is considered so authoritative. And I was just think, are you trying to say something to me? Did you not think how I could receive something like that? You know, it's just maintaining your grace and dignity through those moments and just holding on to the belief that people really mean well and it's not something they want to like cause you any pain or make you think that you're not qualified to be where you are in the role that you're in at the organization. You know, I think part of why it's almost hard to articulate some of these thoughts is that it's just, it's sort of like someone asking you, how do you know to walk? We just have been navigating through these circumstances for so long that it's become second nature. So forgive me that it it may seem hard at times to articulate some of this. I often like to highlight we all, and that, that includes people of color, play a part in this. When there are times where you go into an interview in addition to all the nerves you have built up around the interview and, you know, am I going to be good enough? For me, certainly there is that thought, don't trip up on words in a way that may come off as some sort of vernacular, possibly, that you may be comfortable speaking amongst friends of color or, or friends not of color, but friends who understand. Getting yeah. Off, but. <laughs> even in terms like I know preparing for interviews, even how I wear my hair, like may not necessarily wear my two strand twist. I'm going to go get it professionally blown out just to appear more professional. I'm sure you guys have experienced this along with me that so many organizations are making public statements and people are responding in a variety of different ways through giving, through pledging, you know, lists of changes that they're going to make. How does the way people have been responding impact the way you feel about the organization or you know, how you feel about where you, where you are within that sphere? So my organization, Be The Match, we're actually based in Minneapolis. So with George Floyd's murder and uprisings that are happening in Minneapolis, I feel from my colleagues out there in Minneapolis, I'm also proud of how our organization is rising to the occasion and looking at how we can be a part of to rebuild Minneapolis, also increasing diversity and inclusion, where we're looking to increase internship program for students from HBCUs by 50%. And also, um, just being really open and honest, one of the key initiatives for Be The Match is to diversify our registry because there's such a large disparity between if you're a Caucasian, if you're looking for a bone marrow transplant, there's a 75% chance you'll find a match. If you're African-American, there's only 23% chance. We're very cognizant of disparities that face people of color at um, my organization, and I'm just so proud to work with the people that I 
do. They reached out to me. They've been incredibly sincere about seeing how I'm doing, but also how they can help improve their community. Our CEO reached out to the Black employees. Like I would have never expected something like that, but you could just tell she was just sincere and wanted to make sure that we felt supported and heard. And unfortunately, it's not the first time a person of color has been unjustly killed and I still had to show up and go to work. Like I still had to show up and go to work after the Charleston church yeah. massacre. I still had to go to work after Trayvon Martin. I still had to go to work after Sandra Bland. And this is the first time that people ask, are you okay? And I never expected it. And I didn't realize how much these events impact me because I realized how closely they can happen to me or someone that I love. So it's just been the encouraging part that eases your anger and frustration. Yeah, this didn't just start last week with George Floyd. And we've had to show up to work. We've had to show up to work our full selves. I know certainly me, even the incident that took place in Central Park with uh, Amy Cooper, that really hit home for me being that I'm a native New Yorker. I love New York. Central Park has been my backyard for my entire life. It just really highlighted a major issue. And I'm, I'm so glad that it highlighted it to the degree that it has where other people are seeing it. Going back to the sort of microaggressions point, it can be a micro or a macroaggression where you, you may share an experience like that. And I had something not quite as severe, but something similar happened at a Starbucks on the Upper West Side just before COVID. You know, you share it with people and sometimes it's sort of dismissed or made to be, are you, maybe you're exaggerating or maybe this, maybe this, did you give this person not enough grace? And it's like, no, we shouldn't have to give someone grace for not recognizing our whole selves, right? We, we want to navigate the world as humans and the human family as of one while acknowledging that there are issues one section of this giant group of family members may experience that others don't and just acknowledge it. That, that's just the first step. Talking about resources and ways for people to be a support, acknowledgement. That's like, it'll go a huge, huge way. And then think about how to move forward. We're not always going to get it right. And I think the fear of getting it right is what prevents people from actually growing. I'm having this conversation with my team, with my family, with my friends, friends from all different backgrounds, and just wanting everyone to know, I want you to be okay with knowing that I will not always get it right. And I'm okay knowing that you're not always going to get it right. And once you start there with that basic foundation of trust, like human trust, I think we're going to go a long way as a society. The conversations are happening. And I do think that is the way things are going to get better, as you said. And it's so great to hear you say that acknowledgement is such a huge step because we do make mistakes and you are giving people concessions again and again. But I guess the question that I have, especially in the context of a coworker or, you know, doing something in our field is, do you think you feel more comfortable now raising a microaggression, pointing it out, or starting the conversation? Absolutely. Firstly, I want to acknowledge, I think it's case by case, or rather organization by organization or company by company. Um, I have friends who work in the financial sector. They're expected to show up to work. They have been expected to show up to work, and no one mentions that anything has happened. I feel very fortunate that I'm at an organization that has taken the time to freeze, essentially, and say, like, there's a problem, addressing that problem, acknowledging the problem, and then figuring out a plan of action. So once that space is created, that mutual trust, which I feel I have um, at my organization, yes, absolutely. I can't wait to start calling things out, to be quite honest. And it's mm -hmm. not in a like, 
I'm going to get you kind of way. It's in a way of we're going to truly be comfortable, have those uncomfortable conversations like I have with my family. I think, you know, there are generational gaps amongst different relatives in the, the household and we have difficult conversations. They just don't think in the same way my wife and I may think. I don't think in the same way that my younger sister, who's a college student right now, thinks. But we're all going to have those difficult conversations and meet somewhere in the middle and, and walk away from it with greater understanding, trust, and essentially love. I think it's the, the core of love is that trust. I am just so excited. I think I'm, I'm getting sort of chill speaking about the future of the organization, and I can't wait to get back to the office and really see this in action. And I can't wait to be called out myself as well, right? Like it, it works both ways. And I think that's what I really want to highlight and continue to highlight. Yeah, I agree. I think like Thomas said, trust and transparency will go a long way in allowing colleagues to have these conversations that may make them uncomfortable. During one of our open forums about diversity at work, the facilitator said, I can't promise you a safe space because I can't promise something that is going to be said will offend you or hurt you, but I can promise you a brave space where you can be yourself. And I think that I love that just really drove it home for me. It's like you need to be able to be yourself if you're going to have these vulnerable conversations with your colleagues and, you know, reveal things that have affected you. You have to trust they won't use it against you down the line. I have to believe that a colleague won't think that I'll always be looking to pull the quote unquote race card on the same side. They also have to trust. I'm not going to be hesitant to work with them just because they may have shared, oh, my cousin posted offensive picture. It's just giving that grace and balance and understanding that it's going to take everyone to like move us along to make a difference. I think that makes so much sense. I haven't thought of it in that way that it, it is all about the relationships and the one-to-one. -one. How about with donors? If a donor says something that's offensive or uncalled for, how have you handled that and how might you handle that differently now? I can speak to a donor experience that obviously stuck with me because I'm bringing it up. My colleague and I were on a donor visit out west, a major American city. The donor had been communicating with me for six months via email and phone. Thomas Moore, uh, my colleague, he is a white male, was on the trip with me. We go to meet the donor, put our hands out to shake his hand, and he immediately turns toward my white colleague. Thomas Moore, so good to meet you. Or, you, you know, you must be Thomas Moore. Great to meet you. And he's like, actually, no, that's Thomas Moore. I'm, um, you know, on his team and here to support. Oh, you know, you get the oh, sort of the look Brittany sort of talked about that maybe you think that they're hoping you didn't really notice. But used to it, right? Navigating the world for a number of years by now. So we, we go to sit down and then it's mid-conversation talking about the mission. The donor interrupts to ask, where did you learn to speak English? Most Blacks don't know how to speak English. And I'm just so impressed that you can speak English. <laughs> I smiled as I do, because again, navigating the world with, with comments like that for so many years and in very white spaces, and also that, that sense of hope that I hold on to, I think it, it's really what gives me strength to go on generally. I just said, well, my parents speak English, their parents speak English, their, my grandparents or great-grandparents have spoken English for their entire life. And um, I guess I'm just fortunate. But back to the mission. My colleague, on the other hand, was jaw dropped. And it really affected him to the point that till this day, we still talk about it. And he just can't believe uh, how ridiculous some people's world perspective has been, or rather limited world perspective. And that if that is any sort of inkling of what I go through on the daily, he it was just so 
empathetic, compassionate, you know, all, all those w- words you can think of to, to just say sorry on behalf of society. You, you ask how we deal with it or how I work through it. It's kind of everyday life, especially in the role that we're in as frontline fundraisers. We're, we're out to get money for admission. It's part of the course. I do think an organization has somewhat of an obligation to think of some sort of ethics or morals clause as, as to where the line is drawn. And I think that maybe now with all that's happening on the, in the world, we may be able to get to a point where organizations can really put those ethics and morals clause to practice and maybe turn down money coming from a place that's not most in line with the values of the organization. So if, you know, a CEO heard comments made like that by a top donor to one of their employees, something is done. It's not, oh no, we need that big check or else we're all going to shut down. But we have our, you know, ethics and morals clause to point to. You know what, Mr. John Smith, it was actually very nice to meet you. Maybe your, your world thought view is not in line with the mission and or maybe we just walk away. We here know so much as frontline fundraisers. I think it's maybe in part our job going forward in the future to tell the organization where the no, the firm no lands for our ethics and morals clause in terms of donor gift acceptance, right? Well, now I'm getting chills because I do think that's a place where we can move the needle as fundraisers. And it's almost making me think about the conversation that we've started to have in the last several years about sexual harassment. It's kind of in the same category of like, I'm just not comfortable working with this donor anymore. And there's no questions asked. Absolutely. Absolutely. How about you, Brittany? I hope nonprofits can move to the point where they can have like an ethics and moral course, but oftentimes, especially with smaller nonprofits, they're operating from a place of scarcity. So it may be hard for them to turn down the John Smiths of the world who may not align with their mission. Yeah, and I, I think I would add to that, maybe it's not just a, a turning down, but it, it's time for dialogue. I think that we're in a place where we can dialogue about it yeah. maybe and say, we may need that gift. We're a smaller operation. However, maybe we can use the gift and in, in our mission, tie it all together to educate this person. That's again, my hopeful, optimistic uh, spin on it, but that's where we're headed. And I think that is a, a beautiful place. I agree. I honestly don't think we were there a month ago. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think, as Brittany said earlier on, there was Trayvon Martin. There, you know, you can name all the these incidents. So, what makes George Floyd and this so different? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. I'm just happy we're here. I'm so happy we're here, and I'm so looking forward to the future of, of what this moment in time means to to all of us and my future children and their children. We're so lucky to have you in leadership positions in your current institutions, but also stepping outside of the day-to-day. Thomas being involved with AFP and Brittany being involved with the nonprofit management program at Columbia University. What are your career aspirations long-term? You know, I got into the field pretty much right out of college and I love it. I, I just some days can't believe I get paid to do what I do. It's connecting people to missions that will just make the world such a better place. Seeing program participants in action brings me so much joy. Seeing donors being able to see the mission in action brings me so much joy. Indescribable joy, to be quite honest. I'm in this for the long haul. um, And I just see now as I'm growing in the career space that I am now 
charting myself with becoming a mentor to a younger people who may not know of the development space um, as I did not know until someone introduced it to me. And tying it into my role in AFP, I'm now on the Professional Advancement Committee. I work very closely with AFP board members of the New York City chapter on developing programming to, to help cultivate and steward professionals really in the space. And through that, I'm just learning all I can from all the talented fundraisers around me. I look to them for help often, and it's really been a two-way street. I think they look to me and they see the energy, the youthfulness and the excitement that remains in the space. When COVID first started, one of the mentors in the program said to me, or said to all of us, fundraising is not going away. Our missions are not going away, therefore fundraising is not going away. And that just made me feel so alive to know that because our mission still will exist, the programs will still exist, our roles in this big giant puzzle of the world will remain. My long-term goal would be to become a VP of development at a hospital or university, but I'm flexible in how that may happen. I'm not thinking like, well, this has to happen next. I have to secure this job at this place. I'm trusting the process and just focusing on where I'm planted right now. I love working in the nonprofit management program as an associate instructor. It just gives me an opportunity to work with students who are so eager to work in this field and just helping them navigate what they can do with the knowledge they obtain in the program. And it's just really exciting to see, you know, like the next generation come up and just do this amazing work. It's because it really is joyful work to know that you have such a platform to make a difference for people. And it's just, it's just incredibly rewarding. So one of the things I've taken away just in the last week, week and a half is that it's not enough to just have the conversation and it's not enough to just empathize that we need to have actionable items for long-term change. What do the two of you recommend for people who are hungry to do more work and educate themselves about how to make change? I'd say to start, continue with that theme of vulnerability, be vulnerable, let go of ego. I think ego gets in the way of a lot of progress across the spectrum and looking to resources around you. That includes people of all backgrounds, making sure your network is uh, comprised of people of all backgrounds, making that active effort to ensure that your network is comprised of people from all backgrounds. And if you want something solid, a document that I've grown to love is a white paper done by Cause Effective. And I first really got to experience it in community at New York City Fundraising Day last June, where hundreds of fundraisers from all backgrounds gathered together to really sort of analyze this white paper titled The Lived Experience of Fundraisers of Colors, Money, Power, and Race. I would direct any and everyone to read this, colleagues, directors, CEOs, just any and everyone, because I don't think this is just a fundraising document, but a document that penetrates all of American workplace and life. The great thing about this document is that it walks you through experiences, but it also gives you actionable items as to things you can do to be an ally, to be a support, to be a mentor, to be a fellow, ways that you can help make things better. And Brittany, did we realize that you were there on the same day and that Thomas was there too. No, no, we didn't know that. We could have met a year ago, but exactly. that was a very powerful session and just just reaffirmed that other people have your experiences, but that also means you have a network you can lean on when you go through certain things and so you're not sure how you should respond or react. That was a really moving session and a great white paper resource that I also shared with colleagues. Just to add to Thomas's point about 
looking at your network, how diverse is your network? Do you have only one African-American and you only have one Asian-American or a Latino person? Is there so many different people and not all those individuals are a full representation for their race or ethnicities? Curiosity is the core component of being a great fundraiser and use that curiosity to build relationships with your colleagues, regardless of their race, their sexual identity, their religion, just you know, use that curiosity just to learn something about people. It's the same curiosity you do when you build your relationships with your donors. You're just trying to understand them and figure out how you can work together. And that same principle applies to building your network and working with your colleagues as well. I personally am going to take that to heart. And I hope that everyone listening does. Yep. It'll only make things better. Invite people to challenge your assumptions. I think inviting people from different backgrounds, that's inherently what they will do. And that will just make the end product, whatever that may be, better. I want to thank you both for your bravery. I know this conversation wasn't easy, um, but it's one that simply has to be had. So I really appreciate it. And we're, we're practicing vulnerability right now. I would love to end with my signature question, which is, Thomas, Brittany, what do you know for sure? My mom used to say something every day before, you know, saying goodbye and sending me off to school is that make sure you learn something and don't be afraid of challenges because challenges, um, they shape you and help you grow. And also worry about where you are right now and trust that everything will always work out for your greater good. Thank you. What I know for sure is a quote I love from Arthur Ashe, which is start where you are. Um, if you let that be a guide to your life, giving yourself the grace that we talked about, giving yourself the energy that we talked about, the resilience, hope will follow, right? Being hopeful is, is really what uh, gives you the energy to do all that you want to do in life, being vulnerable. So what I know for sure is starting where you are leads to success in all aspects of your life. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Catherine. Thomas and Brittany welcome the opportunity to speak with you either as a mentor or colleague. They both let me know that you can reach out to them on LinkedIn. What stuck with me from them was to take the time to listen and acknowledge your black colleagues' experiences. As Thomas mentioned, let's start where we are and learn and grow through vulnerability together. Thanks for listening.